0: Thank yeah. you. no fear, no pain, no, no other name is greater than all the great I am. No guilt, no shame, no sin, no stain. I
1: preparing not kind of as i was preparing uh for this morning uh, this line of thinking i started of have this line of thinking i know imagine that i had a line of thinking right <clears throat> um j- that i think sometimes we we uh we become separated from the Word of god we, we, it's, it's, we, we segregate ourselves for us we, we look at life and, and the life that we 're going through and and we see the Bible as it, uh, uh, well there it 's a story about things that happened in the past and and we can learn from those things and they can give truth to us and you know it can help us figure out and parse this life but 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 when we look to the future, we look to the. We, we, we may even think that I can use the Bible to try to help me figure out how to move towards the future. But the future somehow is this unknown, nebulous thing, and uh, scary thing, hard thing, um, and there's no real connection other than the Bible. You know, we have this inheritance that we've been given to us, and there's there's these those who have gone before us, and we want to be faithful. And yes, we need Jesus. But I think we miss something vital in all of this. The Bible is literally the story of all of life, all of it, beginning to end. And since life is not over with yet, it's also our story. Now, think about that for a minute and let the impact hit you. What that means is, though, yes, I can come to the last page of the Bible and they stop writing it and they're not writing more Bible, but where does that last page end? It ends in our future, not our past. It ends in what's coming. Not what has already gone by. So what does that mean? Just like we read about Peter and we read about Paul and we read about Luke and Moses and Joshua and and all of these characters throughout the story of life, you and I are one of those characters. Your life is no less significant than theirs, no less important to the story that of God's redemption in creation than theirs. These things were written so that we might know, Paul says. Listen, I, you know, what we miss is this, because we, we're giving so very few moments in, in that history. We're just given these, these, these punctuated moments that we miss a very, very important truth. And the important truth is this, um, is that the profound comes out of the mundane. What does that mean? That means we open up the, the book and we see all these stories. We, we see these miracles happen. You know, we see Peter preaching a, a, a message and 3,000 people come to Christ in one day. And the Holy Spirit's blowing through the place. And we miss the fact that he went to bed every day just like we went to bed. He got up every morning this week, we, we got up. He had to take a bath every day. He had to take care of uh, all the daily things, day in, day out, every day, every single day, all of the mundane. His life wasn't those messages every day. Every day the profound comes out of the mundane. And I think it's so easy for us to get so caught up in the mundane uh, of things of life that we just have to do to survive. We just have to do to get by and forget that we're a part of something so much bigger than us. It's not over with yet, but we do know what the end is. It's not a scary, uncertain future. It's a future that we have a part in bringing about. And it's from that place that Peter writes this letter, this second letter, uh, this letter that he says, listen, this, this is my one chance to leave with you those things you're going to need that I had, that I needed to get through, uh, to bring me through to what I'm supposed to accomplish to so you have the things you're supposed to accomplish. And he leaves us with these eight qualities Uh, of what it means to be effective, what it means to be fruitful, what it means to have everything for life and godliness. And we've been exploring these things and he starts with faith. It starts with faith. It begins in that place. It begins with this place where we know that we know that all that God says and all that God does is true and that the way to all meaning and to all power in life is to take him at his word. That's where it begins, and everything builds from there. And we've talked about virtue. We've talked about there's this moral excellence. There's this, this, this sense of, of what is everything that is right, and we have a, a moral responsibility to, to add to that faith, to live out that faith in this moral excellence, to, to make the, those, uh, those uh, right choices to, to vigorously pursue what is morally right and, and helpful in all of our relationships. Isn't that the, the two great commandments? To love God with all our heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And and that, as that, that the scholars remind us, that that's like the seed of the kingdom of God. That virtue is like a seed. We plant it, and it grows, and it grows. How does it grow? It grows because we then pursue knowledge. Do you notice something here? Faith is not opposed to knowledge. The one thing I hear from skeptics all the time, you see it all the time, is they try to say, you got faith over here and knowledge over here, and we're glad you all can live by faith. We're really happy for you, but we live by knowledge. That's not the faith of the Bible. It says grace and truth came. And that is on which we base uh, our, our faith. And, and so we're, we're to add to this moral excellence knowledge. What is that knowledge? That knowledge, it's, it's the same kind of knowledge that an athlete gets, right? It's the same kind of knowledge that, that I'm, I'm not going to wake up today and be a fantastic uh, uh uh, Outfielder, you should see me play wiffle ball. That doesn't happen. It takes practice a whole lot more than we have. But as you do it, and as you do it, and as you do it, and as you do it, you begin to discern the knowledge of God. You begin to know how God thinks. You begin to have His heart, you begin to have His heart beat. You begin to understand and discern. And, and then we add to that this, this, this next area that we've been talking about. And I, as I said, this is the one area of all of the ones that, that Peter talks about is why does he have to throw self-control in the middle there? If it's the one thing, it's like that's really on the way to love because that's his goal. From faith, it starts in faith and ends in love. You see, the kingdom of God is all about love. And every one of these things building is to bring us to be the love of God in this world. That's who we're called to be. And so talking about self-control, you know we spent last time really building why we need it. What is it? Faith is not just a matter of obtaining salvation. Faith is a matter of life transformation. This is in Faith Life Study Bible. I love this quote. Faith is a matter of life transformation. I was just listening last night um, to uh, an agnostic, skeptic scholar. His name is Douglas Murray. I was in the UK, and and he was saying this. He's saying he's saying you know I I, I, I am uh, I, in my own faith journey. I'm not a believer. I am someone who's on the outside. But the thing that breaks my heart is i look at the church and the church is not living its own faith the thing that breaks my heart is i would that the church wouldn't try to take on the world and be like the world but rather be what the world needs that's somebody looking for the outside telling us to live up to what we have been given what is that transformation life can be changed Overcoming sins demonstrates the power of Jesus in the person's life. Overcoming sin demonstrates Jesus's power. A person who lacks the disciplines of the Christian faith has failed to understand one of the primary purposes of salvation, the freedom to live apart from the bondage of sin. You see, unfortunately, you know, and, and I get it. I, I really do. I really get it. There, there is, in a lot of circles, there's a, there's a message um, that that I think, takes grace and defines it wrong and takes grace and makes it license and, and makes sin permissible and i get it the reason why i get it is because this life's hard it's difficult and and for sure the answer is not walking around in condemnation the answer is not walking around in sin the answer is not walking around and seeing yourself as some kind of a horrible beast that's not the answer jesus didn't die for that I'll put it. Let me, uh, I'll put it this way, and I'm a very, very simple analogy. Okay, if you take a diamond. You can take a diamond and you can have that diamond uh, uh, encased and and, and put it out there to, to be seen and all its beauty and all its glory. And you go, wow. And you can say that diamond has incredible value and you can appreciate it for all that value. I can take that same diamond as a thief and a crook and cut through glass and break into people's houses and do all kinds of mayhem and horrible things. But the diamond hasn't lost its value even though I've done it with that the diamond is still intrinsically valuable. That's us. Our value isn't in our behavior. Our value is that we are created in the image of God. And so we have to start from that place. That's who Jesus died for. He, but, but he didn't die that we stay in that place. He, stayed, he died so that we could show the glory of who we are and who he is through us. So that, you get this? Everybody with me? All right, so... I like this. Uh, I like this. The New Bible Dictionary points this out about self control and, and Peter's usage of it here. It says this in 2 Peter 1 6, self control forms the midway stage in a distinct moral progress of the believer, which commences from faith and culminates in love. He says self control is the middle point. You start in faith and you end in love and self-control is the middle point. And I thought of a, a story that I heard recently that just is, it's set so profound with me. And I think it really points this out. It says this, this, this is a, 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 a lady, a young lady. Um, her name is Yanmi Park and she was a defector from North Korea. How many people have heard of her? She's a defector from North Korea. She's uh, not a believer. And she tells her story, and I mean, if you get a chance to listen to her story or read her book, I highly, please, please read it. It should be mandatory reading. She comes to one place in her story where she escapes out of North Vietnam and just lived under, I cannot even describe the horror which she lived under, and she says she had it good compared to others. I mean, to even think that, I'm telling you, I'm listening to the story and I'm just weeping as I'm listening to her tell her story. And she comes into, to, to, she's, she has these people that help her to escape into China, but they had an ulterior motive. Their ulterior motive, as soon as they get her into China, they're gonna sell her into the sex trade. So she's escaping from this to get to this, and she says, this was better than that. This was better than that. She was rather be in this than that. And so, uh, so she, she happens, she, she's wanting to escape and wanting to get out, and she meets some Christians. And the, the Christians, you know, after a, after a while, um, the, the Christians say, okay, listen, if you are a Christian or if you become a Christian, we will help you escape. And so what is she going to say? She goes, yeah, absolutely, I'm a Christian. Well, she lies through her teeth. And she starts going to the Bible studies and going to all the services and everything. And and then she says this, and it it broke my heart. She says, when they found out what I used to do, they said some of the most derogatory, hateful, harmful things and just completely destroyed my spirit. I literally was crying as I was listening to this. And the person who was interviewing, it was Jordan Peterson who was interviewing her, and he says to her, says, how did that make you feel about the Christians? And she said, we are very complex beings. She said, because I had several people who helped me along the way to escape to get here. And when I asked these Christians what their names were, they wouldn't tell me their names. And the reason why they wouldn't tell me their names is because they wanted no credit for helping me. Everyone else who helped me had a motive and wanted something from me. And these were the only people who were putting their lives on the line, who were putting themselves in harm's way and at risk for no benefit for themselves to help me escape. You see... That's why Peter put self-control in the middle on this moral progress between faith and love. It's real easy on one side to say, "Yes, I've come to Jesus." It's a whole another thing to say, "I'm living the love to Jesus," and we are on this journey that is complex, that is difficult, and what did they, what they did to her was that wrong? Yes. It was wrong what they did for her was that right yes and that was jesus my question to you my question to me is how much of me is just like them there's a chapter in this book here called maximum faith live like jesus experiencing genuine transformation great book Highly recommend. I don't know that it's even in print anymore. You can still find it like on Amazon. It's by George Barna. He, he defines these 10 stops on the way from faith. Actually, he begins even before faith. He begins with someone knowing nothing about God at all and gives 10 stops on the way to living out the love of, of Christ and being that way. And, and stop number six is this. Experiencing a prolonged period of spiritual discontent. Experiencing a prolonged period of uh, of spiritual discontent. He says this, After years of involvement in the Christian faith, most people slip into a spiritual coma. Their faith becomes a series of rituals, routines, recitations, rules, relationships, and responsibilities. Without noticing it, their spiritual goals also slip into a more relaxed state, such as they are no longer stretching their faith muscles and pushing themselves to explore and master new spiritual territory. Rather than sustaining their passion for getting closer to God, they become comfortable with their spiritual experience. But some people realize that there is a silent, unobtrusive kind of nagging that is troubling them regarding their faith those who explore the genesis of this inner turmoil sometimes conclude that it is because they have become spiritually numb engaging in a religious life on autopilot and are missing the full relationship of life adventure with christ that is available to them this season of holy discontent Most likely instigated by God to jar them into reevaluating what they want from him and from life is a major decision point for the believers who get this far along the journey. It is at this point in their pilgrimage that they must make some momentous choices. I'm going to jump on down and he says this. This is a time when serious believers ask the right questions out of spiritual hunger, but are also susceptible to cynicism, doubt, and frustration. Asking the right questions and getting the right answers are two different things. Most believers who get to stop six abandon the investigation once they realize the commitment and cost of moving forward on the journey to wholeness. Instead, they retreat to an earlier stop on the path and simply settle for what the local church and other spiritual entities have to offer in the process. They retain their good intentions. They retain their good intentions, but typically become either invisible or institutional pillars. In other words, rather than pay the, the price of a deeper relationship with God, they retreat to the shelter of the religious games that ensnare most church people. Now a small portion decide to grit it out. They reject the normal Christian experience based on the trust that God has something more fulfilling in store for them if they will commit to completing the arduous journey. They cautiously decide to pursue a more challenging, all-encompassing, holistic faith experience. They're not sure what they're signing on for, but they figure it must be better than where they presently enduring. Here's where he finishes The emphasis during this phase Reflects in the initial stages of integration What is it? The blending and balancing Of heart, mind, action, and spirit I read that I asked myself the same question That I asked when I thought about Yami Park's story Is that me? Am I comfortable or am I being stirred in my spirit that says, I know there's a fullness in Christ that I'm not living, I'm not experiencing, but I I want that. And then I look at it and I go, dang, that looks kind of hard to walk out. No, I'll go back to this and be comfortable here. How often have I done that? You see, I think that's exactly where we are in this list of Peters when we come to self-control. So how then do we blend this balance between heart and mind and action and spirit? Where, how do we, how do we to, to bring this blend, what's, what's, what's intended in my mind, as Paul says, with my mind, I serve the law of God in my body. Well, let's not talk about that. I don't always make the right choices. But with my mind, I'm serving. How do I blend what I, what, that, that sense I'm supposed to walk in the spirit? I'm supposed to be, be, be uh, uh, filled with, with uh, his love towards others. How do I find the, the balance between all of these things? And there's a verse in Titus. It says this is in Titus 2, starts in verse 11. It says this, for the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. Now, think about those words for a minute. He is literally personifying grace and he's doing the exact same thing John does in, the, in his first letter. He says, for grace and truth has come in Christ Jesus. Grace of God has appeared. It is here. It is in the person fully of Christ Jesus. It says this, and what does the grace of God do? It brings salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us from all, um, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works man paul knows how to write a run-on sentence I'd just love to see what an English teacher today would do with that. <laughs> it's probably because it wasn't written in English, so, but anyway. What is he telling us? He's telling us this. Number one, we must engage and allow the grace of God to discipline us. As, as God as a loving father disciplines his children, even as Jesus, Jesus learned obedience through discipline. So this seems contradictory in our minds because we think this is discipline and this is grace. Whenever we're, you know, when we're kids and we go before our parents and we know we're about to be disciplined, what do we ask for? Instead of discipline, can I have grace? We don't put them in the same sentence. We don't don't hear our parents saying, yes, I'm going to give you grace. Turn over. Do we? We don't. Okay. But this is what he's saying here. He's saying um, that the grace of God isn't just, uh, uh, actually, I'll say that in a second. Let me tell you what the grace of God, let me say this first. What is it that the grace of God will do in us? What's he say? The grace of God, sorry, fumbling more words. By God's grace, we developed a self-controlled spirit. So, what I would submit to you is rather calling it self control, I would call it spirit control. I would call it grace controlled. And when you have that. Emphasis, that understanding, it's no longer about you gritting your teeth and figuring your way through. It's about you falling to him and his mercy day after day and letting him wash you, letting him cleanse you, letting him lift you up. And not quitting and not giving up, not feeling in guilt and condemnation and shame, but coming to his love that grows you and matures you, but not stopping, not staying here, continuing to go through it. And when we do that, what happens? When we engage the grace of God, it trains us to renounce everything that's ungodly. It trains us to renounce worldly passions. When we engage the grace of God, it enables us to be self-controlled, to be upright, to be godly in this world. When we engage the grace of God, it enables us to put ourselves firmly in where real hope in this world is. Instead of the immediate rewards of this world, we're looking forward to the reward of the hope of his turning. That's our hope because that's what gets us through when, the, when this world isn't. We, when we engage the grace of God, we demonstrate that, that we are literally redeemed from lawlessness to be pure in Jesus. We demonstrate the kingdom of God on earth. When we engage the grace of God, we become zealous for good works. All of these things. What I want us to see is it's not about the grace of God making me so spiritually minded I'm over here and let the world go. And it's also not about me uh, trying to work and earn and somehow get to Jesus. It's me being in this place, enjoying my relationship with Jesus, who then allows me to bring and be the kingdom of God on this earth. And how do we do that? That's what spiritual disciplines are, that's what spiritual disciplines do, that's how they work in our lives. So i love this quote here um, from the ministry leader in the inner life grace vis-a-vis discipline lest we see discipline as something that must be manufactured on our own however the empowerment of spiritual bliss discipline is found first and foremost in the grace of god working in our lives by the holy spirit this is grace-filled discipline that we're engaged in. Foster notes this, God has given us the disciplines of the spiritual life as a means of receiving his grace. God not only meets us in the spiritual disciplines with his grace, but we also find that we are wholly dependent upon God's grace in the practice of spiritual disciplines in the first place. So, in theology, there's this term about how the means of grace are operating in our lives. And, and there are some who would say the means of grace are given to us as we uh, uh, perform certain rituals. When I do this ritual, I receive grace. What, what the author is saying here, the means of grace are as I engage God in in spiritual disciplines, I am, I am creating the throughput. I'm creating the means for his grace to operate in my life. So we're not going to talk about, we're not going to get into, there's a a, a, a whole list of spiritual disciplines. I recommend you look them up. I'll talk about them some other time. But, but you know, you, things like prayer and fasting and uh, reading your Bible and study, service, help, um, solitude, worship uh uh acts of um um, missions work giving i mean there's there's a whole list of things that are disciplines in our lives that we can practice that we can say lord i want to bring glory to you and focus on bringing those things in our lives and we'll some other time we'll talk about it in depth the point i'm trying to make is because we can make those rituals to get to god rather than god's means that he's bringing grace into our lives Have you ever thought of your tithing as a means for God to bring grace in your life? Have you ever thought about as your prayer as a means for God to bring grace in your life? Have you ever thought about solitude as a means for God to bring grace in your life? Have you ever thought about helping someone as a means for God to bring grace in your life? You see, and that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. You see, each one of us, as Peter writes this, each one of us has received a gift. You have a gift. It's not that it's not you don't have to look for it. You don't have to wonder what it is. You already have it. Each one of us have a gift. And he says, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's what? Grace. You see, when, we, when we're acting in him, we're literally stewarding the grace he's put in our lives. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the orals of, oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves. How? By the strength that God supplies. Do you see? That's the grace of God operating in our lives. Paul says it this way, for this I toil, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I love that verse. I think about that verse all the time because I go, man, this is so hard. He says, yeah, aren't you glad my energy is working in you? Amen. All right, so most of us see grace as this great reservoir in God reservoir in God that we can turn to when we need his forgiveness. We see it like it's the pull behind the 70 times seven. I've talked about this before, right? Well, that though that's true, there are certain elements that true that, you know, that, 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 that pull of the 70s times seven principle that we can keep going to him forgiveness, that there is an element of truth that's there. What grace really is, is the fuel that changes us. It's the fuel of the Holy Spirit that transforms us. In other words it's not passive it's God faithfully and actively working in us to conform us to Jesus. So, that said, I love this quote here. Allow me to invite you, allow me to invite you to join with me in exploring what might be referred to as the wonder and beauty of the Christian life. That is pursuing God through spiritual disciplines. Toward this end, there's four areas of discipline to consider. So we're going to briefly look at four areas and how these when we consider these areas when we intentionally consider how can I walk this in my life and what it will do as a result. So the four areas are this, having a holistic perspective, having an eternal perspective, having a divine perspective and having a joy perspective. A holistic perspective, an eternal perspective, a divine perspective and a joy perspective. What is it to have a holistic perspective? We have a tendency to, to reduce everything to the to the smallest things. We have a tendency, Jesus, I need you in my life to fix this. Jesus, I need you to fix that. Jesus, I'm struggling with this. Jesus, this is the area I need your help. A holistic perspective says my whole life belongs to Jesus. It's not about one area of my life. It's about all of my life. Jesus, let me give you my life. Let all of life be about you. And and, and to this end, Paul writes this in Colossians. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God set your mind on the things that are above not on the things on the earth for you have died catch this and your life is hidden with Christ in God when Christ who is your life appears then you will appear with him in glory okay do you catch what he just said he didn't say when Christ who's a part of your life appears when Christ who wants one hour a week from you appears. When Christ who remembers that one time when you helped that person and you keep going back, see God, I was a good person when I did that appears. It's when Christ who is our life appears. And then he goes on the second perspective. What's the second perspective? So we have a tendency to reduce. When we see the, our Christian life, our Christian walk, and we engage in spiritual disciplines for it to be all about life, that is the antidote. Uh, to, to, to reducing our life to, to um, um, those reductionistic moments. The second is eternal perspective. What is the eternal perspective? The eternal perspective, quite frankly, let me I'll lay it down. I got a fantastic quote and all that, but let me just put it this way. The eternal perspective is this. We become in love with the world. We look at the treasures of the world. We look at what the world has to offer. Jesus' whole parable about the seed, the seed that falls on the bad soil. So that So the, the world does, can't even affect that person because there's so much in the world. The, feed, the seed that falls on thorny soil, that person, all the, the cares of the world chokes it out. The seed that falls on rocky soil. I mean, as soon as it gets hard, it dies. Okay, we, it's very easy to be caught up in the world. The eternal perspective is the one that has yields, 30, 60, 100 fold. Why? Because though we are walking in this world, though we may enjoy the fruit of this world, it is, our life is not lived for this world. It's the antidote to being intoxicated with the world. It's the antidote to the, the passions and the desires we have to wanna embrace this world. The, uh, the antidote to the, the uh, three aspects of sin, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. That eternal perspective. When we say this world is temporary, yes, I'm in it. Yes, I can enjoy and, and be, participate in it, but I can't make it my reason for being here. Spiritual disciplines with an eternal perspective uh, become that antidote in our lives. Okay, what's the third one? The third one is, and then, I'm sorry, the scripture, if you can look it up later, Matthew 6 says this, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. You know, when you catch what he's saying there, that whole concept of laying up is spiritual disciplines. You're the one actually doing it. It's applying spiritual disciplines. You're the one. Where are you laying up your treasures? And when we do that, it gives us this eternal perspective. The third, the four, third one is this, is divine perspective. What is it, a divine perspective? So I can, I can have a holistic perspective, say my life belongs to Jesus. I can have an eternal perspective and say it's all about uh, what's eternal, not about temporary. And I can still miss the main point. The divine perspective says that I am here to see and experience God. I love the Westminster Confession. It asks the first question, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We are to see and experience him. Jesus says this in John. Eternal life is to know God and to know his son, Jesus Christ. Spiritual disciplines are to bring us to the end, not only that everything is whole, not only that it's eternal, but that we are now and here walking in this divine nature that will be fully coming ours, seeing and experiencing Jesus. And that is what we're bringing to the world. That is the gospel that we are are touching. That is how we are changing and transforming life around us. So it brings us to the fourth one. The fourth one, how many fingers? The joy perspective. Rather than a life of drudgery, disciplined drudgery, the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life are designed to bring us, in contrast, what we might refer to as disciplined joy. Why? Because the disciplines of the Christian life usher us into the presence and onto the agenda of God, the one in whom ultimate and lasting joy is found. We don't have a right perspective of God. We don't understand God rightly. We think of God as dour. We think of God as so serious. If he is truly loved, has anybody ever had a good belly laugh? Where do you think that came from? God is so filled with joy in and of himself and desires for that to pour over to us. And that is what sustains us through what is hard and through what is difficult. And we can actually have a joy perspective. How do we have that joy perspective? Hebrews 12 verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Victor, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let's run with endurance the race that is set before us. Say, we've got this incredible heritage of those who have gone before us and how did they do it the whole chapter is about they did it in faith they did it by trusting in the grace of god working in their lives and they did amazing things through through the best of times and through the worst of times this is there's this great cloud that's going on before us there is also this heavy weight of sin that wants to push on us that wants to make this a race of endurance and it says this how do we do it verse two looking to jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. In other words, he doesn't just begin our faith. He walks with us in it and he carries us to the end. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy... That was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured uh, from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. How do we develop that joy? The same way Jesus developed that joy. He is our joy. He looked at the cross. He embraced the cross. He didn't want the cross, but he knew that through the cross, the joy of God would be made full why i'm closing with this if you listen to the skeptical scholars and philosophers of this world they'll tell you what when you look around the world what do you see you see truth is overcome with lies you see goodness is overcome with evil you see hope is overcome with despair and you see beauty is overcome with death says how can you true that with good true goodness how can you true that with true love And Jesus responds to that. That response is the cross. Why? Because at the cross, truth was overcome with lies. Goodness was overcome with evil. Hope was overcome with despair. You don't think so? Be one of the disciples on Friday night at 630. Beauty was overcome with death. Death and he took all of those elements all of this constituent elements of what's bad and wrong in this world and he swallowed it up and he brought life creation is renewed life is restored mankind is redeemed and love overcomes by grace and truth it brings real forgiveness real forgiveness And that's joy.